0: This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode Seventeen. Did the Early Christians Celebrate Mass? The Mass for Catholics is the highest point, the summit of our worship, the center of our spiritual lives, the heart of the Church. We believe it is the fulfillment of Christ's command at the Last Supper to do this in memory of me. We believe that Christ, as foreshadowed by the Passover Supper of old, fulfilled it and created something new at the Last Supper. For he anticipated his sacrifice on the cross by making his body and blood sacramentally present to his apostles, showing himself to be the fulfillment of the Paschal Lamb, the victim offered for our salvation, who was then consumed. Now the real question is, while that's what we believe as Catholics, is that what the early Christians believed? Our Mass today has a particular structure, particular prayers. Was there anything that looked like that in the early church? In this episode, we'll look at the ample evidence that the early Christians, the earliest Christians, did in fact share these same beliefs about Christ and the Eucharist, and did celebrate the Mass in an almost identical fashion in terms of its structure as we have today. As the last episode, I'll begin with the earliest fathers of the Church, the earliest witnesses to this, because that provides even better evidence that there was no real change or transformation over time from the beginning to what we have now trying to point out the fact that those who lived in the lifetime of the apostles did have these beliefs, and this was the belief of the church, the apostolic church. I'll begin with a quick review of some of the texts we read in yesterday's episode, just to cover the earliest ones. So first, the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles from the year 70. Assemble on the Lord's Day and break bread and offer the Eucharist, but first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. St. Clement of Rome, writing to the Corinthians in the year 80, "...our sin will not be small if we eject from the Episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered its sacrifices. Blessed are those priests who have already finished their course and who have obtained a fruitful and perfect release." So it's important that both of these very early documents mention the Eucharist, but also mention it as a sacrifice, right? Not just a, a memorial supper or a gathering to commemorate, but an actual sacrifice. In the Didache, Malachi, the prophet, is is quoted, For this is the offering of which the Lord has said, Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of nations. So they see Malachi as prophesying about the Mass, and this is something that comes up in the writing of many of the fathers of the church. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, writing in the year 110, Make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist, for there is but one body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and but one cup of union with his blood, and one single altar of sacrifice, even as there is also but one bishop with his clergy, and my own fellow servitors, the deacons. So here again you have the mention of the Eucharist as a sacrifice, mention of the altar of sacrifice. Now perhaps the most thorough and striking example of mass among the early Christians is the description given by St. Justin Martyr. He wrote something called an apology or an explanation to the Roman Emperor Antoninus Pius, trying to explain the practices of the Christians. Uh, In order to ease the persecution that was going on because of rumors that were spreading about the Christians, St. Justin Martyr is trying to explain to the Emperor what's really going on. So in 155 he writes, On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the presider, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent by saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each, and a participation of that over which thanks have been given, and to those who are absent a portion is sent by the deacons. And they who are well to do and willing, give what each thinks fit, and what is collected is deposited with the presider, who succors the orphans and widows, and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want, and those who are in bonds, and strangers sojourning among us, and in a word takes care of all who are in need. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. Now to clarify what this Eucharist is, Justin says elsewhere in this same apology, We call this food Eucharist, and no one else is permitted to partake of it, except one who believes our teaching to be true, and who has been washed in the washing which is for the remission of sins and for regeneration and is thereby living as Christ enjoined. For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the word of God, and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by Him, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured, is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. So of course this is not language of symbolism. He reiterates this is not some common food and we have been taught. He says, as we have been taught. This is the tradition, and remember he's only writing in the year 150, and he's saying this is not normal food or drink. Jesus had real flesh and blood, and when the prayer is said over the bread and wine, it is the same flesh of that incarnate Jesus. Saint Irenaeus, who was writing in the year 189, and he was a disciple of Saint Polycarp, who was himself a disciple of John the Apostle. So again, this is on good authority. Irenaeus writes, He took from among creation that which is bread, and gave thanks, saying, This is my body. The cup likewise, which is from among the creation to which we belong, he confessed to be his blood. He taught the new sacrifice of the new covenant, of which Malachi, one of the twelve prophets, had signified beforehand. By these words, he makes it plain that the former people will cease to make offerings to God, but that in every place sacrifice will be offered to him, and indeed a pure one, for his name is glorified among the Gentiles. So here again, invoking the prophecy of Malachi, and also, of course, the words of Christ from the Gospels. St. Cyprian from Carthage, writing in the year 253, so obviously we're moving a little bit later in time, but we're seeing a consistent tradition from the very earliest to these later fathers. Cyprian says, If Christ Jesus, our Lord and God, is himself the high priest of God the Father, and if he offered himself as a sacrifice to the Father, and if he commanded that this be done in commemoration of himself, then certainly the priest, who imitates that which Christ did, truly functions in place of Christ. So this is a teaching that we hold regarding the priesthood, that the priest, when he acts in the sacraments, is standing in the place of Christ, not as if he becomes Christ or anything like that, but Christ is acting through the human instrument of the priest. Harkening back to the argument we made about a visible church, that God saves us according to our human nature, right? He intended to become seen and heard, And so when Christ became incarnate, it was so that we could see him and hear him because we are body and soul. We are saved according to our own nature. So Christ intends that we still now hear his words, even though he is not still walking this earth. He intends that we hear his words, his words of mercy, his words in the mass, this is my body, this is my blood. And he's simply doing that through the instrumentality of the man, the priest. Serapion, writing in 3.50, this is actually a a written prayer from the Eucharistic sacrifice. Accept therewith our hallowing too, as we say, Holy, 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 Lord Sabaoth, heaven and earth is full of your glory. Heaven is full and full is the earth with your magnificent glory, Lord of virtues. Full also is this sacrifice with your strength and your communion. For to you we offer this living sacrifice, this unbloody oblation. This term, unbloody oblation, is the way we describe the Mass as opposed to the oblation or offering on the cross, a bloody sacrifice. The Mass is the unbloody representation of the bloody sacrifice on the cross. You also see here that as we move a little bit further down uh, the centuries, this is still only in the fourth century, but you have the Mass developing more particular, specific prayers, and a lot of these things uh, resemble what we say in the Mass now. For example, the the holy, holy, holy. All Catholics will recognize that from right after the preface to the Eucharistic prayer leading into the Eucharistic prayer. Back in Justin Martyr's description, there's not a lot of specificity about the prayers. It basically just says the presider prays according to his ability, which would be a scary thing nowadays to leave up to to priests to just ad-lib. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who's famous for his lectures on catechesis, preparing Christians to learn about the faith, preparing them before they uh, are baptized, he says, and this is in the year 350, he's writing this, Then, having sanctified ourselves by these spiritual hymns, we beseech the merciful God to send forth his Holy Spirit upon the gifts lying before him, that he may make the bread the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ. For whatsoever the Holy Spirit has touched is surely sanctified and changed. Then upon the completion of the spiritual sacrifice, the bloodless worship over that propitiatory victim we call upon God for the common peace of the churches, for the welfare of the world, for kings, for soldiers and allies, for the sick, for the afflicted. And in summary, we all pray and offer the sacrifice for all who are in need. A lot of recognizable elements from the Mass of today in those words of St. Cyril. is The prayer over the offerings uh, before the consecration recognize the various petitions, praying for you know kings and soldiers and the poor, etc. St. Gregory Nazianzen, writing to a priest in the year 383, says, Cease not to pray and plead for me when you draw down the word by your word, when in an unbloody cutting you cut the body and blood of the Lord, using your voice for a sword. Here referring to uh, the priest pronouncing the words of consecration, the words of Christ, making the body and blood of Jesus present. Saint Ambrose of Milan, famous also for being the mentor Saint Augustine, writing in 389, says, "We follow in as much as we are able being priests, and we offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people, even if we are of but little merit, still in the sacrifice we are honorable. Even if Christ is not now seen as the one who offers the sacrifice, nevertheless it is he himself that is offered in sacrifice here on earth when the body of Christ is offered. Indeed to offer himself he is made visible in us." he whose word makes holy the sacrifice that is offered. Very strong language of sacrifice and the reiteration that it is Christ who offers the sacrifice and he is the one who is offered. He offers himself. That's what makes Christ's sacrifice of infinite value. Christ is both the the priest and the victim. So an infinitely worthy priest and an infinitely worthy victim is the infinitely valuable sacrifice. I'll conclude with this quotation from St. John Chrysostom, writing in the year 387. He says, When you see the Lord immolated and lying upon the altar, and the priest bent over that sacrifice, and all the people empurpled by that precious blood, can you think that you are still among men and on earth, or are you not lifted up to heaven? Reverence therefore, reverence this table, of which we are all communicants, Christ slain for us, the sacrificial victim who was placed thereon. In ancient times, because men were very imperfect, God did not scorn to receive the blood which they were offering to draw them away from those idols. But now he has transferred the priestly action to what is most awesome and magnificent. He has changed the sacrifice itself, and instead of the butchering of dumb beasts, he commands the offering up of himself. In another place he writes, What then? Do we not offer daily? Yes, we offer, but making remembrance of his death. And this remembrance is one and not many. How is it one and not many? Because this sacrifice is offered once, like that in the Holy of Holies. This sacrifice is a type of that, and this remembrance a type of that. We offer always the same, not one sheep now and another tomorrow, but the same thing always. Thus there is one sacrifice. By this reasoning, since the sacrifice is offered everywhere, are there then a multiplicity of Christ's? By no means. Christ is one everywhere. He is complete here, complete there, one body. And just as he is one body and not many, though offered everywhere, so too is there one sacrifice. So a lot of theology of the Mass and theology of the Eucharist in those words of John Chrysostom. But take note of the fact that he's showing that the Catholic belief is not that we re-offer Jesus over and over again, or that it's a new sacrifice every time, but simply every time we offer the Mass, it is making present again the one sacrifice of Christ once for all. It's the only sacrifice needed. We are not making new sacrifices to God, like the priests of the Old Testament. We are simply representing, or even making ourselves present to, the one sacrifice that was begun at the Last Supper and consummated on the cross. So did the early Christians celebrate Mass? It certainly seems that they did. Their belief in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, their belief that Christ commanded them to offer this sacrifice in remembrance of Him, that it was a sacrifice, that it is Christ who is offering it, all of these things are exactly the same as what we believe now. Even the structure of the Mass, as early as St. Justin Martyr, pretty much follows the same structure of Mass now. So it's hard to see what significant difference there is, theologically and liturgically, between the liturgy of the early Christians and the liturgy as we have it now in the Church. Did they call it Mass? No, because Mass as a word came later just from the dismissal, the end of mass, ite misa est, but while it wasn't called the mass, it was the same reality. If you want to do more study on this topic on your own, the writings of the Fathers of the Church are widely available on the internet, so if you don't find the quotations in this episode sufficient, you can easily research thousands and thousands of writings of the Fathers of the Church that are available. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please consider becoming a member at my Patreon, patreon.com slash Brief. Also, please follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a five-star rating. God bless.